my chief has gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and God laid all our iniquity on him.
Thank you again, Brother Ernest. The Lord gave Brother Ernie a gift, and he's sure made it a point to use it for his honor and for his glory. And for that, we're grateful. I'll tell you a story. Many years ago, we had Ernie up at our church in Paris, Texas, and uh, Ernie was, that's, that's back in, this is how long ago it was. It was back in the days of cassette tapes. Now, some of y'all don't even know what those are, but used to, that was something that was like really advanced. And so Ernie gave me a cassette tape of some of his songs. And my son, my oldest son, was probably about three years old at the time. And on that cassette tape, there was a song that Ernie sang that's called Step Into the Water. I don't know if you ever heard that song, but he sang it. And I'd play that song, and my son just loved that song. And so he got to a place where his mother decided that he needed to go to this little preschool thing, and uh, I didn't really think that was a good idea myself for two reasons. Number one, I'm a tightwad. I didn't want to pay for it. And number two, he was just so young that I didn't think he needed to be in any kind of school. But it, nevertheless, it became my responsibility to take him every morning and drop him off. And so on the way, I'd play this tape, and we'd get to the door, and he'd, say, he'd just beg me. He'd say, Daddy, before I go in, can, can, can I hear Ernie sing, Step Into the Water? And I had to play that for him before he'd go into the day school. So Ernie had brainwashed my kid with that song at three years of age. And he's been doing this a long time. The Lord's really been, has blessed him through the years. And I'm grateful for his servant heart to the Lord and for the ministry that God's called him to. You know, I, I wish everybody could have grown up in a home like mine in, in a lot of ways. I'm not saying my home was perfect. But I can tell you this about my home. I had two parents who always determined that whenever Sunday rolled around that they would have their family in church. They always had Bibles in the home and always tried to lead us in understanding the Word of God and the ways of God. And uh, they always basically tried to help us walk in the way that they felt like was upright and honest and good. Didn't do everything right and everything perfect, but who does? But they really, really tried to make sure that they provided a home environment where we could really begin to learn who God was. And, and that began from the earliest days I can remember. I never remember a time not being in church. But I also never remember a time in my life whenever I was not just a, just a shred, and those who know me will know that I'm understating this, rebellious, just a shred rebellious. I remember the earliest time that this, is, this came home to me whenever I was about four years old. My mother was five foot one and three quarters, and she always made sure that that three quarters was on there so everybody would know that she was taller than five one. And she was a redhead, and I mean she was a redhead uh, in, in every sense of the word, feisty, fiery, whatever you want to say. And so she, she made it a point to, to make it a point to know that 
as far as we were concerned, she was the boss. And, and we understood that to a degree. When I was four years old, we had, it was Sunday afternoon, and I was outside. We lived in Baytown, Texas, and I was outside on the swing set. And I was having the time of my life. I was just carefree, swinging on the swing set on Sunday afternoon, beautiful day. And my mom comes out and says, Mike, come on in. It's time to go to church. I said, okay. I just kept swinging. A few minutes later, mom sticks her head out the door. And she says, Mike, I said, come in. It's time to go to church. Okay. Kept swinging. A few minutes later, she comes out, and she doesn't stop at the door. She starts coming toward where I am. She says, Mike, I said, come in. It's time to go to church. And I said, nothing. But I stopped swinging, and the closer she got, I left that swing, and I started moving away from her. And then she started moving more quickly toward me, and I started moving more quickly away from her. And I found out that my little short mother, five, one, and three quarters, that I could outrun her when I was four years old. And so I ran. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I ran and I ran and I ran. And she was chasing me out across that yard. And as I think back on it, it's kind of funny to think about that picture. But, but then as I was running, I was looking behind me, and boy, she was saying, you better not run from me. You better not run from me. And I kept running. And so finally, she just quit. She says, I'm not going to chase you all over this yard, but you're going to have to come into this house eventually. And so she quit chasing me, and I went and sat back down in that swing, and I started kind of, you know, just sort of swinging again, and I was thinking, well, she's right. <laughs> I'm going to have to go in that house in a little bit, and I don't think that's going to be a lot of fun for me. And you know what happened? Whenever I went in that house, it was just, I mean, I waited till right up. It was almost like they were coming out of the door to go in the car to go to church because I thought at that, at that time I wouldn't have enough time to get the tar beat out of me. By the way, my parents, they believed in that. It didn't do a lot of harm, I don't guess. And, and I was right. I was right. I, it was just enough. She didn't have enough time. She says, whenever we get home from church, you're going to get it. And for some reason, something happened. I don't know. Maybe the preacher preached on forgiveness. I don't know. But when I got home, she did not whip me. And I think probably that might have been one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my life. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I think even in my little four-year-old mind, I, I, I got this thought that if I run fast enough and wait long enough, that I can get away with whatever it is I want to do. And, and, and so in my mind, even though I grew up in church and, and at an early age received Christ as my Savior, the older I got, the more I realized that I didn't always want to do everything that God was asking me to do. And so the older I got and the more uh, freedom that I got, the more I decided that the things I wanted to do were more important than what God wanted me to do. And I began to run from God with all of my might. And, and as I grew into my later teen years and my early adult years, I can tell you that I became a, 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 a gold medal spiritual sprinter. Every time God would get up close to me, man, I would run with everything that I had. And on more than one occasion, God would tap me on the shoulder. And he would say, I'm still here. And one of these days, you're going to come back. One of these days, I'm going to get your attention. But I would run, and I would run, and I would run. And I remember one time, 
in the fall of 1980. It was sometime probably October, November, you know how those, those beautiful fall days, those crisp, clear days, the sky's as clear as it can be, the leaves are just starting to change. I was leaving work right down here at Allison Chevrolet, and I was driving home, and I got right out here on the, the long open stretch just out of town. Boy, I, I was taking stock of my life, and I, I felt as empty as I'd ever felt in my life. And just on a whim, I hadn't even, I, I don't even know the last time I'd really been to church at that point. And, and just on a whim, I made a statement that, that would come back to be a, a, a life-changing moment for me. And this is what I said. I said, God, I don't know if you can hear me or not. I don't know if you even care if I'm here, but here's what I'm going to say. If you can hear me, and if at some point you will make it clear to me that you want to do something with my life, whatever it is that you show me you want to do, then I'll do it. And I just put the pedal to the metal and just drove on off and didn't give it another thought. But I want to tell you something, God heard that. And at a point, he really did get my attention. That's another story for another day. But, but the point that I want us to zero in on tonight is this. How many of us have been much the same way that whenever God moves in close to us, we find a way to put on our spiritual track shoes and take off in a dead run the other direction? How many of us find ourselves whenever God begins to try to, to draw us to himself, beginning to say to ourselves, not now, God. This is not a convenient time. Not right now, God. I've got other things going on. Not right now, God. You know, I know you're there, and, and I'll be there whenever I get ready. I'll be there when the timing's right for me, but not right now. And we run away. We, we run away. I want to tell you something. That's not something that is uh, simply our own experience. See, in Scripture, there were a lot of those kind of runners, a lot of people that whenever God began to move in their lives, they would take off. One of those guys' name was Moses. I don't know if you know much about Moses, but Moses was a very interesting fellow. He was one of, the, one of the people that God used more mightily than any other person in the whole history of his self-revelation. And, and what we find as we begin to look into the story of the life of Moses is that from his earliest years, he seemed to be one of those people that God had his hand on. God preserved him in his infancy whenever a lot of other children were being murdered by the government of the, of the Egyptian king. God saved his life, and he lived in the Egyptian kingdom until he was 40 years old, and he realized that probably he had a special place in the deliverance of God's people, the Israelites, and so he began to try to affect that in his own strength, and he made some terrible mistakes, actually killed a man, and when he killed a man, he took off on a dead run away from Egypt because he knew that he was going to have to pay a price for that, and he found himself way out in the backside of a place called the Midianite Desert. And out in that desert, he began to live his life. He met a woman, got married, had some children, began to, to actually keep the, the herds of sheep for his father-in-law. He was a shepherd. He was taking care of these sheep day in and day out. For 40 years, he would take these sheep out into the desert somewhere and graze them and make sure they were fed and watered and cared for. And that's what he did every day, every day of his life. This man that ultimately would be one of the most powerfully used men of God in all of human history, Spent 40 years of his life, day after day, in and out of the desert, feeding those sheep, tending those sheep, caring for those sheep, watching over those sheep. That was the story of his life. It was sheep. 
He probably didn't even have to count sheep at night because he counted them all day. When he wanted to go to sleep, he'd just think about his day. And next thing you know, he was out like a light. And so one day, Moses is out there, and he is moving along, doing what he does, not expecting anything different. It's just a routine day in his life. He's not sensing that, that anything's going to happen that's out of the ordinary. He's not expecting anything to occur that's abnormal. Much like most of us, we, we get into these things that we call routines, right? And we wake up every morning and we, we set our alarm clock pretty much the same time. We, we drink the same amount of coffee. We eat the same breakfast. We do the same thing in the morning. We have the same lunch. We do the same thing in the afternoon. We have the, the dinner at the same time. And whatever we do in the evening, we, we either know what television program is going to come on that we're going to watch or what we need to do around the house. Same thing. We have these schedules, these routines. We do them over and over and over, never really expecting anything abnormal. But sometimes when we least expect it, sometimes when we didn't anticipate it, and sometimes certainly when we didn't even want it, God shows up. Whenever God shows up, I want you to understand that anything can happen. Anything can happen. But every time God shows up, I want to say to you that something should happen. Whenever God begins to affect an encounter with us, something should happen in the context of that experience. And I can't believe, I cannot believe that God has not brought us here tonight to affect an encounter with himself, to cause an encounter, to bring about an encounter with himself. Now, I don't know what all needs to happen here tonight, but I believe with all of my heart that something should happen here tonight. That's beyond what we've expected, that's beyond what we've anticipated. In all likelihood, most of us didn't get up this morning and, and say, God, today ought to be something more abnormal and more unexpected than anything that's ever occurred in my life. But what if this is the day that God's ordained? What if this is the day that God has chosen to show us himself in his power in greater ways than we've ever seen it before? What if God brought us here tonight to do something? Not just to say something, but to do something. Are you open to that? Let's see what happens in Exodus chapter 3. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn there. I only want to read the first six verses. Let's see what's going on. Scripture says it this way. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he, God, said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off, the, off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look on God. Father, I want to ask you in these next few minutes that we'll share here together tonight to move within our hearts, to speak to us powerfully, to share with us what you've brought us here, not just to say, but to do. 
And Father, may we find ourselves at any point in the same mode of responsiveness as your servant Moses, saying simply with all of our lives, here I am. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. If you've ever stood beside a mountain, you know that there's a lot of different sensations that are likely to occur whenever you begin to observe the magnificent sight in front of you. I remember the first time I went to the mountains, I was just overwhelmed. I, I'm used to the hills, the rolling hills of East Texas, but I'd never really seen mountains before. And the first time I saw mountains, I was blown away. I thought, man, these, these things are just, they're majestic, they're huge, they're magnificent, they're amazing. And whenever I, I stood beside those mountains, there were really two things that began to come to my mind. The first thing that began to come to my mind was the, the sense of my own diminutive stature. I began to, to think about, in comparison to those mountains, how small I really am. And the second thing that came to my mind was, was what a challenge it would be to try to scale that mountain, to try to climb that mountain. And, and it became a, this amazingly intense obstacle that was right there in front of me. And, and for me, it kind of was a, a sense of adventure. First time I went to the mountains, it was out in Gloria, New Mexico. Those aren't the hugest mountains in the world, but they're big enough and so we had a lot of free time, and, and, and my thing was, I'm fixing to go climb those mountains. And so I did. I was always the one that kind of wanted to be out there a little bit further than, than some others and do a little bit more. And so I said, I'm going to see what's up at the top of these mountains. And I'm going to tell you that I began to climb those mountains. And, and, and as much time as I had, as much energy as I had, I still couldn't get to the top of that mountain. And the thing is that, that I began to realize that this thing is huge. It's majestic. It's monumental. It's actually mountainous. And so uh, in scripture, whenever we begin to read about mountains, there are many times that God does some very significant and spectacular things on or around mountains. And in this instance, what, Moses, what happens to Moses is that Moses, as he sees this mountain before him, it becomes a place of deep significance because for him, in this place, he meets God face to face. And so when he meets God, there's something that happens within his life. Not only does he have this, this view and this vision beyond himself, but there's something that occurs within his life because as he sees God face to face, this spiritual restoration begins in process. It begins to occur in his life. Maybe this evening you're here and you are, in a sense, you've been living sort of beyond the sound of God's voice. You, you've been just beyond the reach of the touch of God's hand. Maybe you've been waiting and it's been some time since you've sensed the nudging of His own Holy Spirit in your life. And I want to ask you this evening then, would you join Moses as he comes up close to God? Would you right now in your own heart say, God, I want to come near to you today. God, I want to sense your touch in my life. I want to hear your voice as you speak. Please, God, if you've got something to say, help me to come in close so I don't miss it. So what we see that begins to unfold here in the life of Moses, first of all, is what I call the opportunity for personal renewal. Now, I want to talk to you for just a moment. We've been calling this week a week of revival. And I want to tell you that, that revival certainly can have corporate overtones. Revival is something that become a that can become a sweeping movement of God. 
But until, before it'll ever become a sweeping movement of God where it, it gathers up groups of people, it has to become a personal thing in the lives of individuals. One person, then another person, then another person has to come to this place where they sense that God is speaking and that God is moving. And then there has to be a yieldedness from that individual to the, to the voice of God, the drawing of God's spirit, the, the truth of God's word. And so we have to recognize first and foremost the presence of a divine visitation. So what we see here, Moses out tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, in the backside of the desert, and Scripture says he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. The mountain of God. So let's think, first of all, about Moses and the mountain of God. What does that look like for him? Moses was a man who, in every sense of the word, was away. It doesn't matter what you want to say away from. He was away. Moses was away from civilization. He was away from all of his people. He was away from his culture, his, his known way of life. He was away from the, the people who worshipped the God that he worshipped, the way that he worshipped him. He was away from his God, period. He was distant. And he had developed this life of routines. And the course of his life from day to day was taking him further and further in his spirit and in his soul away from God because God had no place in it. And yet here what happens is that in the course of his life, unbeknownst to him, God had planned an encounter. And so he says he finds himself at this place called Horeb. Now the, the word beyond that in this verse says the mountain of God. Now he didn't know that this was the mountain of God. He thought it was just a mountain. He didn't know that this was something unique and special and spectacular. He thought that it was just a routine mountain but it's the mountain of God. And the word Horeb in the Hebrew language actually means glowing heart, glowing heat. And so it's talking about a heart that is hot with the heat of God. And what God intended to do for Moses here was to set his heart on fire for the things of God. And I want to tell you something, folks. If the world that we live in has ever seen a day whenever it needs the people of God to have hearts aglow, hearts burning with the fire of God's spirit and God's truth. It's the now that we live in. Folks, we can't postpone what God wants to affect in us. We can't push that into the future. We need to see it now or we're going to lose so much ground in terms of what it means to reach our world for the Lord Jesus. So we see Moses in the mountain of God. But more importantly than Moses coming to the mountain of God, the place where God would be, the, the place where God had stationed himself, was what would happen with, between Moses and the God of the mountain. See, the mountain of God, the place of God's important, but the God of the place is more important. And so what Moses is doing now is he's coming to this place where he's not only coming to the mountain of God, but he is coming to the God who is waiting for him there in that mountain. The scripture says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now those who know, those who've studied this, would suggest to us that that phrase, angel of the Lord, speaks about a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so here, he's basically saying that, that deity showed up on that mountain. God showed up on that mountain. And the way that he showed up is like this. He appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Then this bush, it says, was burning and burning and burning and burning, but was never consumed. It was never consumed. Now, I've seen a lot of fires in my day, but I've never seen one that ultimately at some point didn't burn out. I remember whenever I was uh, 
growing up, uh, before we came down to this neck of the woods, we lived up in, around Nacogdoches, and we lived out on Highway 7, the airport road, they called it, and we had rented this place, and, and this was whenever we were starting to have these, these, uh, these dairy calves for ag projects and that sort of thing, and we had nine acres of land that we had kind of fenced off there, and right out in the corner of that, just outside the house, there was, there was what we called a burn barrel. Now, we all know what a burn barrel is. In Sherman, Texas, nobody would know what that is because they don't have those. You burn something in Sherman, the law's going to come get you. But out there, we burned our trash, and my job was to take the trash out and burn it. This was one of those days, it was like the middle of summer, and the, the grass had grown up and started to turn brown, and so I, my mom said, take the trash out, so I took the trash out, and I brought my matches with me. The barrel had gotten pretty full, so I piled that trash up in there, and I struck the match, and I got it to burning pretty good, and I was sitting there kind of watching it, and next thing you know, I heard something crackling. Well, you know what had happened, don't you? That trash had fallen over the back side of that barrel, and that grass had begun to catch up on fire. And so here I was. I had on a pair of short britches and barefooted, like I always was in the summer, and I thought, well, I can't stomp on that. And so I found an old bucket half full of water, and I poured it on it. It didn't make a dent in it. And the next thing I knew, we had a full-fledged fire going there. And before it was over, I'd burned off about 15 acres. Now, if you remember, I said we only rented nine acres. <laughs> so what that means is the fire had gone much further than any place we had there. And we had all the neighbors and everybody else. I mean, everybody was, they were swatting out fire where they could because it just kept going and going. But the thing about it is that, that once it had burned, it couldn't burn there anymore because it burned out wherever it had burned. This fire was different. This fire never stopped. It burned and it burned and it burned. And so Moses, was, was, he was caught by that sight. And if the fire had burned out, he probably would have said, well, who knows what happened? Might have been lightning. Who knows? But it just kept on burning. And so Scripture says Moses recognized that this was unique. It was different. It was special. And he said, I must turn aside and see this great sight. Now, that's important. That is very important. Here Moses is moving along through his life, minding his own business, not expecting any disruption, not wanting any disruption, perfectly satisfied. He's got his wife and his family, he's got his job, he's got his routines, he knows what his life's going to look like every day. And suddenly this, this bush starts burning, and he sees it, he watches it, and it keeps burning, and it keeps burning. And at this point, he's got a decision to make. What am I going to do with this? Am I just going to turn away and walk away and say, well, it must have been something unusual or unique, or am I going to turn aside and see what's going on? See, whenever God begins to show up and tap us on the shoulder and try to get our attention, we have a choice to make. We have a decision that's in front of us, and the decision is clear. It's not one that we have to try to work through some kind of a fog to understand. The question is this, whenever God begins to nudge us, whenever God begins to move within us, whenever God begins to stir in us, whenever God begins to speak our name, are we going to turn aside and see what God has to say? Are we going to try to listen for the voice of God? Or are we going to say, well, you know, that might have been a good conversation, but I really just didn't want to go into it right now. Moses made a determination in his life and this is what he says, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why this bush doesn't burn up. I'm going to go see what's going on over here. I'm going, to, I'm going to give my attention to this at this point in time. And so what's happening here is that in this bush, the holy presence of Almighty God has showed up in the wasteland of Moses' life, this desert that he's walking through. 
Here was God revealing Himself, manifesting Himself, establishing the reality of His presence, and demonstrating the nature of His character. And so there was a holy meeting that had the potential to unfold here. But Moses had to say, I want this encounter too. God showed up. Moses had to say, I want this meeting. I'll take this meeting. So, he does. And, and, and for this to happen, there's a couple of things that he had to come to terms with. The first one was, he had to accept an interruption to his own personal agenda. For Moses to accept this encounter with God, he had to accept an interruption to his own personal agenda. He had to come to terms with the fact that whatever was about to happen here was different than what had been going on in his life. And so he says, I'll turn aside. His proposed course, his planned course, suddenly became secondary. The sight that was before him was spectacular enough. It was attention-getting enough. It was drawing enough that he was going to do whatever it had to come near and see what it was all about. The place that God was going to be encountered and experienced, it wasn't in the, the, the mainstream of Moses living but it was on a mountain before him. It was on a higher plane. And so Moses had to make up his mind to ascend, to rise up, to come out of the life that he was in in, in order to see where God was and what God was going to say. It was on the mountain, the mountain of God. Now, as he turns aside, Scripture says that God saw him. Verse number 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, I want to tell you something. Scripture says that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth. And it says that he's looking for someone whose heart is perfect toward him so that he can show himself strong on that person's behalf. God is looking for those who will stop and look and listen to him. God is looking for someone. God is looking for anyone. God is looking for everyone who's willing to stop and listen and have a conversation with him and understand who he is and what he's about. And so here's Moses, and he understands that, that he's turned aside, and God looks in on his life now. God, scripture says God saw that he turned aside to look. Then God spoke. God saw, then God spoke. He called to him from the midst of the bush. And look at what he says. He says, hey, you. Is that what your Bible says? What does yours say? You can talk to me. It says, Moses, what does that say? That God knew him. God knew him. This wasn't just some general, hopeful call from God that somebody out there somewhere would listen. This was personal and penetrating. He called his name. He called his name. And I'm so thankful that God knows us. And the scripture says about every one of us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit us together when we were in our mother's wombs. God knows us by name. He knows who we are. He knows the deepest thoughts and the intents of our heart. He knows everything about us. And I want to tell you something. There's nothing that is inside of your life, Scripture says, that is hidden from the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So let me just tell you this. Whatever you think you've got hidden in there away from God, you can't startle Him. You can't, you can't shake God up with anything that you've got in your heart or your life. He knows it's there. He saw it when you did it. He saw it when you thought it. He saw it before you knew it. He knows us. He knew Moses. He knew, he knew that in Moses' heart that there was the guilt of having murdered a man 40 years earlier. He knew that there was the guilt of having turned away and walked away from all the responsibility that should have been his. He knew in Moses' heart that there was this, this apathy 
this distance from God. He knew all these things were there. And in the middle of this, this desert, this destitution, this desperation, he says, Moses, I still know you. I still know you. I've still got your name. I've still got your number, by the way. And so he calls out to him. Now, here's, here it becomes a very important moment in time. Because Scripture says whenever he called Moses' name personally, Moses responded this way, Here I am. I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of responses that have been offered up to God through the centuries of time by people that he's spoken to. Some have been like Jonah and said, God, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I'm going to run like I did. I'm going to take off. You want me, you got to catch me. Well, God did, by the way. Some have said, you know what, God? You're not, you're not going to have me now. You're not going to have me ever. God has, has come close to people's lives and invited them. Scripture says that Jesus was saddened by a rich young ruler that he invited to himself, and the rich young ruler wouldn't meet the terms of surrender. And Jesus, it says Jesus was saddened because he went away not knowing Jesus as his Lord. People have offered a lot of responses to God through the centuries of time. But the one that Moses offers here is the best one that we can offer. It's the one that recognizes that, that there is someone above us, there's someone beyond us, there's someone greater than ourselves, there's someone who is God that is calling our name, and our response to that should be very simply, Lord, here I am. And it's not, it's not as if he's trying to pinpoint for God where he is. God knows where he is. He's saying to God, Lord, I'm offering myself. You're, you're, whatever, whatever I'm in the presence of you're, is greater than myself, and so I'm surrendering, I'm submitting myself to that. I understand that you're somebody that I'm not, and so I'm entrusting myself to you, Lord. Here I am. <laughs> now, basically, whenever that happens, a lot of things kind of begin to cascade. The gate, the gate uh, flies open, the dam breaks, and God begins to pour out in front of Moses. And look at what happens. Moses has come close, but God says to him, you got to stop right here, right now. Look at what he says in verse 5. God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Essentially, in this particular word from God, what you see is God explaining, first of all, the nature of his holiness to Moses. He's saying to Moses, I know what is in your heart. I know what's in your life. I know what you've tried to hide from me. I know what you've harbored in your heart. And, and the sin that we harbor in our hearts, according to God, that iniquity separates us from our God. And so he's trying to say to Moses, you can't come near me yet. You, you can't draw close yet. There's something in your life that has to be put off. And, and he uses the illustration of his shoes. He said, take off your shoes Take off your sandals, Moses, because the place you're about to stand is holy ground. And so essentially what he's saying to him is this, before you can come close, there's some things that have to be eliminated from your life, some things that you've brought into your life that you can't keep in your life if you want to know what it means to live in closeness, in proximity, in fellowship with the living God. And so he begins to describe his holiness. He says, Moses, you come on close in just a moment, but right now you have to take off your shoes because of the unholy practices that you've participated in, you can't come near here. You know, I wonder how many of us tonight would love to have this 
intimate, up-close, personal conversation with God. But, but there's some shoes that we might be wearing here tonight that are, that are unholy, that, that are keeping us from coming in close to the God who's holy. Maybe we have tonight shoes of personal apathy. Maybe we've developed an indifference or a disinterest in the things of God. Oh, we, we like to think about God, but that's about as far as it goes. We, we like to tip our hat to God, but that's about as far as it goes. We like to acknowledge the reality of God. But as far as letting God invade the inner space of our soul, we stop short of that. Maybe, maybe we have shoes of disapproval. Maybe there's a critical spirit that's invaded our heart. Judgmentalism. Maybe we say, well, you know, I'd, I, would, I would love to be a part of, of, of the people of God, but I, uh, as far as I know, they're all hypocrites. Well, that's the, that's the oldest argument Satan can create. I'm going to tell you something, we're not hypocrites, we're imperfect, we acknowledge that, and, and I love the bumper sticker that says Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. I'm going to tell you something, you want to see an example in somebody that, that falls and stumbles day by day, you just look right here, I'll own that. I know me, and I know my tendencies. I'm not claiming to be somebody perfect, but I'm claiming to be somebody that, that somehow in all my stumbling stumbled into the grace of God one day. And I experience the forgiveness and the love and the mercy that he bestows unendingly without, without, without judgment or, or criticism on me. And so who am I to be judgmental or criticism of, critical of anybody else in God's family? Maybe the shoes I'm wearing tonight are shoes of discouragement. Maybe I'm just, I'm just hoping against hope that things in my life will get better. And, and, I, and I've prayed and I've tried and I've cried and... And things just don't seem to, to lighten up. The pressures are still on. I, I still run out of month before I run, before I, I run out of money before I run out of month. Or, or I'm, I'm physically not strong enough to do everything I need to do. Or, or, or my family's still disintegrated and I don't know how to pull them back together. And I'm just discouraged and, and I'm hopeless and fearful about the future. Maybe the shoes you're wearing tonight are shoes of doubtfulness. You just can't quite seem to believe. You believe in God, but you can't believe that God can make that much difference in your life if you surrender yourself in fullness to Him. Maybe tonight the shoes that you're wearing are just shoes of outright disobedience and rebellion. It's not that you don't know who God is, and it's not that you don't believe that God can make a difference, but you just choose to live in disobedience and rebellion to God because you think that's a, a better way for you. Tonight I want to tell you something. As God calls your name, He invites you to come close to Himself. He first says to each one of us, Trust me enough to take off your shoes. Trust me enough to put off from your life whatever it is that's keeping you from experiencing me in my fullness and living in the, 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 the fullness of the grace and the mercy and the love that I can pour out into your life. Trust me. Put off those sandals. Take off those shoes. Put away that doubt. Live beyond your discouragement. Come out of that apathy. Quit being disobedient. Listen to the voice of God. Trust in the heart of God. Come close to Him. And so, he begins by speaking to Moses about His holiness. But then he, begins to, he continues by speaking to Moses about His history. It's, it's kind of like he's trying to help Moses understand that he wants him to come close, but he can't because he's got these things in his life that need to be dealt with. But then he also wants him to realize that the one who's inviting him to come close 
is the God who is eternal, the God who's always been, the God who is faithful, the God who never fails. And so he says, moreover, I'm the God of your father, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he says, I'm the God who has initiated covenant relationship with all of your forefathers and have faithfully brought them who were not a people into existence as a people and have blessed them and led them and caused them who were, who were next to nothing to become this great and mighty nation of people. And what he's going to do ultimately is he's going to tell Moses, I want you to go back down in there to Egypt and these more than a million people that are there that are now the Israelites, the Jewish people, I want you to lead them out. He says, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of eternity. I'm the God who's always been, the God who created and the God who now initiated and the God who called and the God who preserved, the God who protected, the God who loves. I'm the God who lives. So what he's trying to say to Moses is this. This isn't just some ordinary encounter you're having here. You're having an encounter with the God of the universe. And that's no small thing. You're having an encounter with the God of eternity, the God of infinity. The God who is all-knowing, the God who's all-seeing, the God who's all-powerful, the God who's all-loving. And he says, you need to understand that whatever I'm calling you into is going to be infinitely better for you than whatever I'm calling you out of. And so you need to come this way, Moses. And so he invites Moses to come near and to understand who it is that he's that's inviting him to come. And basically, <laughs> he's, he's helping him to know that he's the one who has revealed himself as the God of the universe from the earliest parts of time. You have to remember a little bit about the people he's talking about. He says, I'm the God of Abraham. Do you all remember who Abraham was? Do, do you remember who Abraham was before God introduced himself to him? Scripture says that Abraham lived in a place called Mesopotamia. Now, if you were to look right now, that would be on a map somewhere up in the areas between Iran and Iraq. He was not in Israel. Okay. That was the land that God was... He, he told Abraham, he said, I want you to get out from your family and I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to show you and I'm going to give you that land. That was Israel. Where Abraham lived, the predominant form of worship was where the Babylonian worship occurred. The Babylonians worshipped the moon and the stars and that's, that was the Mesopotamian way of worship. In fact, the, the Babylonian, uh, they're the ones that, that set up all the understanding of astrology and astronomy and all those kinds of things. They worshipped the... The, 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 the bodies in the sky. And so Abraham was this, he was, uh, uh, he was brought up in this, as a moon-worshipping Mesopotamian. At some point he got, he got this sense that that wasn't God anymore and God began to speak to his heart and God gripped his heart and the God who's real, the God who's alive, the God who's forever revealed himself to Abraham. And so when he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Moses understands that to mean that I'm the God who interjected myself into the life of your forefather and began this journey of faith for him and his son Jacob, the, the cheat, the one who would steal you blind. But God preserved him and protected him and saved him and brought him into this relationship of covenant promise and moved him forward through it. So he's telling him that I'm the God who's, who's brought your people from these, these lives of brokenness and, and mess and ruin and brought them into a life of protection and preservation and salvation and grace. So he's saying to Moses, you don't have to keep living like you're living. You don't have to keep trusting whatever it is you're trusting. Because the God who is, is before you. And I'm offering you a chance to have a relationship with me. 
So, so in order to do that, he says, you've got, you got to put away all these things that, that you've been building your life on and, and trust me. I want to tell you something tonight. If we're willing to bear our spiritual feet before God, God will come near to us. If we're willing to open our heart, our soul to Him and understand who it is that's speaking to us tonight, we can encounter God. And if we encounter him, he's ready to hear us say, Here am I, Lord. And he will receive us and he'll love us. And I, I remember several years ago, I'd been down here visiting and my, my family. And uh, it was right around Christmas time. And I was about to make my way back. And, and as I did, I, I, I was when I was pastoring my first church. And uh, as I made my way back, I thought, You know, this is probably a, as good a time as any around Thanksgiving. This is probably as good a time as any for me to try to stop and do a little bit of Christmas shopping. Where I lived, there were no malls. It, it was about like Rockland or somewhere like that, way out in the middle of nowhere. And so while I was coming through Tyler, I thought, I'll just stop at the mall and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go in there and try to do a little bit of Christmas shopping. So I walked in that mall. I walked, uh, the south end of the mall was the Sears store. And so I walked in there, and, and when I walked in, I saw this group of people, and they were all gathered around. And I thought, well, something's going on here. I wonder what it is. And so, as I walked up close, I saw this mannequin there. And all these people were gathered around this mannequin. And I thought, I've seen mannequins before. What's the deal about that? But I looked a little bit closer, and this mannequin was... But it didn't look like a mannequin. It looked like a person. And, and what it was, was it was a, a human pretending to be a mannequin. Now, how about that? You know, you've seen mannequins that they dress up like humans, but this was a human that they dressed up to act like a mannequin. And this girl, she was just standing there. And all these people were gathered around, they're just staring. And I think they really were trying to figure out, is this thing real or is it not? And they, and they were waiting for her to blink, move, do something, and boy, she was good. She was just standing there. And I was watching, and I kept waiting. Okay, is she going to move? Is she going to blink? Whatever. About this time, there was this little three- or four-year-old girl. This little three- or four-year-old girl was not quite as standoffish as the crowd. And she walks up, and she reaches out, and she touches this girl who was posing as a mannequin and she begins to squeal with delight and she says mommy she's real she's real I touched her and I know she's real and you know what happened the mannequin kind of smiled a little bit I want to tell you something folks tonight I'm not trying to talk to you about some 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 mannequin God I'm not trying to talk to you about some pipe dream I'm talking to you about a God who is real and you know how I know not only have I touched him but he's touched me he, he touched my life, and he changed my life. He filled my life, and he made my life whole and complete. And I want you to know he can do that for you, too. He speaks your name tonight. He speaks your name. Are you willing to say, here, my Lord? Are you willing to put him to the test? Are you willing to put him to the test and see if he can be real for you? In just a moment, we're going to pray together, and I'm going to do exactly what I've done every night right now. I'm going to give to you an opportunity to respond to whatever God might be saying to you. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you've never come close enough to God to really experience Him as your own Lord and your own Savior. I want you to know that we're talking about some things that, that far exceed just joining a church or even just being baptized or even just attending a church. We're talking about a real encounter with God deep in, the, in, the, in the, your own heart. Where, where you and God get one-on-one, -on -one, where you and God get alone together, 
and you acknowledge before Him that, that He is your God and that you're here and you're offering yourself, you're trusting Him, you're believing Him. If you've not done that, then in just a moment after we pray and as we sing, I'd like to encourage you and invite you to just come take your pastor by the hand and say, you know what, I've never trusted Jesus, but I want to. I, I, want, to, I want to trust Him. I want Him to be real in my life. He'll help you. He'll help you know how to do that. Maybe you're here as a believer and like Moses, you know what it means to bump up against God, but you've drifted. You find yourself tonight in a spiritual desert way out in the middle of nowhere, but tonight you've come up next to a mountain. And on that mountain there's a burning presence, and that burning presence is the spirit of the living God, and he's speaking to your heart, and he's saying, I want you to come close, but there's some things that have to go out of your life first. I want you to experience me in my fullness, but there's some things that have to be put off first. Come close, but first take off the shoes that are keeping you from being able to approach a holy God. Tonight, I'm inviting you to do that. To lay down whatever it is that's standing between you and, and a full-fledged relationship with the God who loves you and the God who knows your name. And trust Him with all of your heart and watch Him fill your life till you're overflowing with the joy and the, the love and the strength that He wants to give you. As we pray, would you just ask God to speak to you? Father, thank you so much for men like Moses who set before us an example of what it means to be willing to, to put everything about their life in your hands and to say to you, here am I, Lord. Father, I thank you that, that decades ago you, you spoke to me in, in, in clarity and you helped me to know that you had a plan for my life that was better than the plan I had. And you called me into it and, Lord, by your grace, I was able to say, I'll try to do whatever you want me to do, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for letting us be together tonight as your people. But Father, we also pray that everyone in this room will come to terms with exactly where they are in their relationship with you and will leave nothing undone as you speak to us and as you move. In Jesus' name, I'm going to invite you to stand.